Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. This is Darren, and I'm here with John. Our guest today is Ernie Cephalou, a contemporary artist and senior creative director currently working out of Los Angeles, California. He is known for designing art for some of the some of rock's most iconic album covers. Cephalou attended the California College of Arts and Crafts, now California College of the Arts, and graduated in 1969 with honors. Soon after, Ernie started his career on Madison Avenue at Carolini Advertising, where his first assignment was to create the campaign and graphics for the International Paper Company's 1970 national sales meeting. His solution took the form of an elaborate, award-winning off-Broadway musical production, Dolls Alive. In the early part of 1970, Ernie became an art director at Norman Levitt Advertising, where he created the Jesus Christ Superstar album and Angel's logo design in an agency shootout with the Decca Records account as the prize. In 1972, Ernie opened his own agency, Pacific Eye and Ear. Ernie has designed 250 album covers for rock artists such as The Doors, Alice Cooper, Aerosmith, The Bee Gees, The Guess Who, Black Sabbath, Jefferson Airplane, Modern Jazz Quartet, Burton Cummings, and Grand Funk, as well as designing the original Rolling Stones tongue logo. Today, Ernie still leads 100% of all creative design for his agency, Hornbook. So for this episode of Into the Void, we're going to talk to Ernie about his experience with Black Sabbath and the making of the Sabbath Bloody Sabbath album cover. Welcome to the show, Ernie. Hey, well, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you, John. Thank you, Darren, for having me. But, you know, I'm sort of mixed up because I thought we were going to talk about the Sesame Street album I did. (laughs) Are you guys with Sesame Street? Wait a minute. (laughs) Well, thank you for such a great introduction, man. I mean, I... I, um, it's really funny because, you know, I'm, I'm 78 years old and it just seems like yesterday that we were doing all this stuff. And my hair was as long as yours and my beard was full and, you know, and I was crazy on Madison Avenue. It was a very exciting time. And, you know, I, I as you mentioned, you know, I, I started out really wanting to work on Madison Avenue. And after being in college in Oakland during the uh, during the 60s, when everything was changing, the music was changing the world and it was all coming from San Francisco and Los Angeles. And I was in an art school that was just a mile from the Berkeley campus and right across the bridge from Haight-Ashbury where we used to hang out in front of the Grunt Records which the you know Jefferson Airplane gingerbread house out there, the old Victorian house. And we'd sit out there partying all night. And, and then less than three years later, I'm inside partying with the group. I mean, it was really cra- a crazy surrealistic experience, the record business. And like I said, I never really started out to be in the record business, even though I was a big music fan. Um, I, was, I wanted to be a creative director on Madison Avenue, which I was able to accomplish starting with, you know, uh, working for a couple of ad agencies and then getting that Carloni and Associates opportunity to do Dolls Alive. And then going from that to where it was the first use of the Stones lips on a, in, you know, uh, on, a, on an album package that we put together with the entire campaign. It was a, a half a day event with singers and dancers. It was like the Rockettes. Anyway, that opportunity... <clears throat> opened up an opportunity with Norman Levitt 
where I designed the Jesus Christ Superstar album, as you had said in that shootout with the agency, and kept the kept the account where where we were there at, Norm, at the Norman Levitt. Anyway, that sort of begot. I had a headhunter that was very very aggressive, and he would take me in a put me in a place where it was only there long enough to where he didn't have to pay the money back, and then move me to another place. And I, after the second time, I got a little bit leery of that because you don't want to get that reputation of jumping, you know, from one place to another. And, and I liked where I was. And this opportunity came up to where uh, Jesus Christ Superstar was a big album. And everybody really sort of was aware of it. It was, you know, the church was coming out against it. It was getting a lot of PR. And um, I, this headhunter called and said, hey, there's this great place where, you know, they want to see your work. They know about it what you did with Jesus Christ Superstar. And I had kept the Deckard Records account. And so the creative director that was there really kind of took me under his wing and taught me how to be a creative director and what I needed to do and the different, uh, you know, projects that he gave me. Um, and he, I didn't really want to leave. And he said, look, these guys just do album covers. They really excited about seeing your stuff. So I, he talked me into going to the meeting and it was at a company called Craig Braun, which was up on 53rd between Madison and Park, which was a great location. It was this little three-story brownstone. And I had gone in and, you know, I was there for the appointment, made the presentation basically of the Jesus Christ Superstar album, because that's really, and I think I had a couple other littler packages that I had done after, while I was finishing up Superstar, because Deck had started giving us work. And anyway, um, so I showed the owner, the Jesus Christ Superstar stuff. And he said, well, you know, what else do you have? And I said, well, I have this, uh, you know, I have this promotion that I did for International Paper Company. And I showed him the album. I had done an Octagon album cover. And when you opened it up, uh, the label on the record was the Paralypse that I had done for mm -hmm. this project. And he started telling me about how he and Marshall Chess had grown up together in Chicago and Marshall's now managing the Stones and Marshall came to him and needed a logo. And his creative director came down with a nerve disorder that paralyzed him and he needed somebody. So as I look back over my career, and as we'll talk about this, everything is like timing. Timing is what it's all about. Being in the right spot at the right time and then hopefully you have the right stuff. And I was just blessed and lucky enough to do that. So. You know, he had told me about how they needed a logo. And if I were to take, go upstairs to his art department and just draw a pair of, draw a tongue on the outside of those lips, he thinks he could sell it to Marshall Chess and the Stones. So I went upstairs to his art department, spent about 15 minutes doing a sketch, put, it some, put some teeth on it, went downstairs. He said, perfect, uh, wait here. And so he went up, he went to uh, Andy Warhol's factory in lower Manhattan where Marshall Chess was. And that, his connection to uh, the, the Andy Warhol and this whole uh, Sticky Finger album was because he had done the sticker on the um, Berlin, on the, um, uh, what do you call it? The white label with the banana for Velvet Underground. Velvet Underground. Craig, Craig was a sticker salesman and that he sold that sticker that could go off and on and off and on with the pink banana underneath it. So he was connected and familiar with, Warhol's factory and the people there. And then Marshall wanted Warhol to work on this new album, Sticky Finger. And so they all got together down there and Marshall showed him this, or Craig showed Marshall the logo that I had done, the sketch. And Craig came back about an hour later and said, okay, you know, you've got, you've got a, 
you know, you're going to be doing the logo for the Rolling Stones. And it was like, okay, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. And mm -hmm. so I did that over the next couple of weeks as a freelance artist. And then he brought me on full staff, which brings us to how did I get this Black Sabbath cover? <laughs> because I'm no longer, what happened was I, I, I let, I, I was sent out to California because we were, like I said, the movie industry or the music industry was changing. It was going to Los Angeles. And so were the record companies. The record companies started migrating out here because that's where the sound was. It was much easier to do business in L.A. than it was in New York. So I sent out with his vice president to set up a satellite office, you know, set up the art department, hire the artists and then go back to New York and be the creative director there. Well, that didn't work out. Uh, but in the interim, I had done the Cheech and Chong Big Bamboo album and also the Alice Cooper School's Out album. Okay, in 1972, uh, at the end of 71, his vice president and I left his company. And in January 1st of 1972, we started Pacific Nine Year. So we started doing a lot of work with Alice Cooper, you know, the School's Out and, and all the work that he needed there. And uh, and then um, what, ha what happened was um, in about, it was, I guess, the summertime of 1973, my partner Tony gets a call from Patrick Mann, who is the manager of Black Sabbath. And I'm, I'm a big Black Sabbath fan already, you know, I mean, so this was pretty amazing. And he had said that, you know, our name was bounced around. They had seen some of the work we had done for Alice. Shep Gordon was uh, Alice's manager, was a big influence on a lot of the work that we got still to this day. Um, you know, part of the Alive family, you know, they still use me for stuff when they need me. So um, anyway, he had heard our name and they were interested in having us talk to them about doing this new album. So Tony made an appointment for, for me to go out there. He was doing something else. So I, I went out to, they had rented um, a, a mansion in Bel, in Bel Air. And they, you know, I, so I, I pull up, it was one of those kind of places that once you go through the front gate, it's like a five minute drive to the house. And you don't even see the house from when you go in the main gate. I mean, it was pretty elaborate. And so they had rented this, or leased, I guess, this big house. And I guess they were there earlier for a while, but it just wasn't working for them. And they ended up going to, um, to England to clear Clearwell castle. I think it was that they started, you know, cause they couldn't get it together on this new album. They just didn't find what they needed as far as a vibe for the place. But then they went to a uh, clear well uh, castle did it and then came back to Los Angeles to sweeten the recording and also to, um, to rehearse. So they went back to this huge, you know, massive mansion that they had rented. And on the ground floor was a big ballroom. And they had, and so I, I go to the front door and this guy that looks like out of Rocky Horror Show answers the door and um, takes me into the house. And they said I was expected. They took me to the house and opened up the doors to this ballroom. And there they are like, on a, like a little, it wasn't even a stage. It was a carpet. It was down on one end of the ballroom. And so I, they sat me down in a chair at the other end and I'm watching this whole um, performance. 
I'm getting a whole, they were getting ready to rehearse. So I listened to all the music. And I, I think that partly was uh, important for them, for me to hear it, you know, uh, and it always is. It's, as a designer, you want to know, you know, as many, you want to be able to touch as many pieces of the elephant that you can so that you can best describe the elephant. So the more I knew about the groups or the, the, the individuals that I'm doing the work for, uh, the better the end result. And that, that holds true in corporate America too, because album covers, 250 album covers, but I've done thousands of corporate pieces for companies like Kraft and Coca-Cola and Nestle. Um, so I didn't really want to get pigeonholed as a album cover designer. I wanted to be more versatile. And you can very easily become pigeonholed doing album covers. Plus, it, as, a, as a creative person, you need to have that variety. You know, if they, there's that saying that is, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. So I wanted to be able to do more than just album covers. And you'd be hard pressed to name an industry that I haven't done work in. So anyway, we, I go out there, I get, I see that I get this whole present, this whole rehearsal and it was just great. I mean, I was there by myself and them. And it was, and again, like I said, I was already a fan. So I was in awe, you know, of this. And um, after the, after the, the rehearsal was over, um, I had a chance to sit down with uh, Ozzy and Deezer and Patrick, their manager. And because I wanted to know, you know, for, they said that the name of the album was Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. And I wanted to kind of know what they meant by that. You know, I mean, it, it's a very broad, you can take it a lot of different ways. Um, I, and so they kind of explained um, that all that was going on when they were at that castle and um, and the, the tricks that they were playing on each other, but then it got kind of weird because supposedly the castle was haunted and it really it really freaked them out. It freaked them up a bit and they were doing tricks on each other. And no, so nobody knew what was going on, who was doing it. And, you know, so it got to be pretty weird. Plus of all the drugs and booze and stuff, it didn't help. So um, they they ended up expressing to them what you know, the Sabbath bloody Sabbath meant to them was it was kind of the beginning of the end of everything. It was like the beginning of the end. And I mean, and that's kind of how they defined it. I mean, um, and, I, you know, I could see it if it was like, like if you're at the split second of your death or some bad experience, like a car crash that you see coming, you're going like, holy crap, you know, this is Sabbath bloody Sabbath, you know, or just, it just, I guess that bloody thing is a real English thing. And, you know, that I just, you know, I guess it was them really kind of unwinding. Their relationship was unwinding. And in fact, at one point, Ozzy had said that to him, you know, this was kind of the end of it all. This seemed to be the end of it all, because I guess they had a lot of problems getting this album done. And then they had personal problems with each other. There were, you know, feelings of, you know, not being important, you know, being taken for granted, all these different feelings. And again, I'm, I'm sure that partying the way they were partying, um, you know, didn't help much. So, you know, on the way back, so I had, I had this meeting that the whole meeting along with the private concert lasted almost a couple hours. They were very cordial, really professional. And again, as a fan, I was blown away. I mean, I really was. I, I couldn't believe that I was sitting with them and talking about creating 
their image, creating the branding for this group who had already had successful albums, but they didn't have, you know, they didn't have one that really kind of stood out for them. One that they really, this, this album, I guess it was like giving birth, you know, I mean, it was really, it, it was, it went through its gyrations. They went through their personal, you know, vendettas against each other or whatever, and egos and drugs and whatever. It gets crazy. Um, and I, again, this isn't the first group that I've ever worked with that was kind of having that same kind of situation. So, you know, I was really, you know, being very careful about what to ask and not wanting to get too deep into causing some kind of a, you know, a problem with me, you know, and us doing this album cover because I really wanted to do it. I wanted to do it bad because again, like I said, Black Sabbath was huge. You know, it was like doing something for Alice Cooper. You know, I mean, I was lucky enough to do 13 albums for Alice, you know, and, and it was even bigger than the Rolling Stones tongue for me because I was always a Beatles fan, you know, and to get this, you know, if, if I would have had a chance to do a Beatles thing, I would have been elated. Rolling Stones tongue was good. I mean, I liked the Stones, but I like the Beatles better. And, and back in the day when both those, you know, uh, both those bands were in there coming up, you know, one was the good guys, one was the bad guys. And that's kind of how the PR painted it. And he, whether it was real or not, didn't really matter. That was how it, the slant was put by the record companies and the PR. So, you know, to be able to sit with these guys and, and, and have them really kind of get personal you know, I mean, it was only two of them and the manager, but, you know, there was enough to get the vibe that, you know, things were kind of touchy. Um, it's kind of like living with nitro and glycerin and you got to be really careful not to mix them and then smack them. So, you know, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was, you could tell there was some unwinding going on, so to speak. And, and that's kind of what, you know, uh, what Geezer had said, there's like, personally and you know professionally you know things are unwinding but it's all coming together this album has really sort of helped us bring it all together and the experience that they had at the Clearwell Castle had a lot to do with it because I mean they pretty much did it all there and then brought it back to Los Angeles to do you know fin all the finishing touch of recording so um, it was it it was very interesting and I was very excited about doing this and I, I didn't disrupt too much. So on the way back, I'm thinking about, you know, God, this is really, this is a really great opportunity. And, and, and the way they describe it, the way they're explaining it really kind of, when I was in, when I was in Catholic school, I went to Catholic school till the sixth, till the sixth grade. Uh, and in my first confirmation, my aunt had given me, uh, two prints, two kind of European looking, they weren't courier knives because they were more, more rendered, more pen and ink and color, you know, not like a courier knives, but definitely kind of uh, very, very English looking. And one of the prints was a good man and the other one was a bad man. And both of them were at the split second of their death. And I, I found that I went home because it just really, I mean, it just resonated. I mean, it's like perfect. This is perfect. It's at the end of whatever, whether it's your life or a relationship or something, you know, you, you can either be at peace or you can be at turmoil. And 
So I, I found those two prints and I brought them into the art department the next day. Um, and, you know, every time we got a project, no matter how busy we were, and we were getting a lot of projects, we were doing between four and six album covers a month. And we were doing at least three or four corporate pieces. So it wasn't just all album covers. And I was, I was blessed. I had five illustrators that were amazing, you know, uh, and each one of them went on to be very well known. And in this case, Drew Struzan, I don't know whether you know who he is, but he's the most collected illustrator in the world. Yeah. And, and he's two years younger than me. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading that and I'm going, how could that possibly be with all these amazing J.C. Leindecker and Norman Rockwell? And <clears throat> the list goes on and on of these famous painters and illustrators. And the whole reason was because Drew, once he left Pacific Ioneer, he went into doing movie posters. Yeah. And he, he became the most collected illustrator in the world. He is today the most collected illustrator in the world. And his and the pieces that he's done in the movie industry changed. He he did to the movie industry what Andy Warhol did to fine art. He changed it. And it never was the same again. And Drew's style was developed when he joined Pacific Ioneer in 1972. And, and by 1975, <clears throat> he was very you know, much in demand in the movie business. And it was okay because um, the record industry by 1984 had taken a slump for us. Um, there was an overglutton of people that were doing what we were doing. When we started out in 1972, there were probably three companies uh, along with Hypnosis in England who did all the Pink Floyd covers and stuff. Um, so there weren't that many, so it wasn't so hard to be in the top three. You know, it was, it was only it was like being a, you know the only horse in the race kind of thing. Uh, but um, so for for us, when the move when the record business was taking a slump, our corporate business went through the roof, and it was it was kind of again being very blessed. The illustrators kind of went into left Pacific Ironier and went into the movie poster business because that was going from photographs to illustrations and the corporate world didn't want illustrations of their products. They wanted, if it, uh, I did work for Nestle for 30 years. They didn't really want to see drawings of their, their, their food. They wanted to see photographs. So we became very photo heavy and less illustrated. But in this case, um, I went back, we had a meeting in the art department and I showed the art department. There's five illustrators, myself and a production artist. And I'm showing these two prints and I'm talking about what the guys had said and how it just really struck me that at the end, I mean, the major end is the end of it all. And that's kind of how they were describing Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. It, it was like the end of it all. And so, you know, uh, it was up to me really as a creative director to come up with the concept. And then I do, I did lettering as well. And I'm a graphic designer, I'm not really an illustrator. I have done some illustration, but when you're surrounded by people like Drew Struzan and Bill Garland and Carl Ramsey and Joe Garnett and Ingrid Hickey, you have no reason to be an illustrator. They're the best there was. And again, I, I always say, you know, I was blessed enough to be able to surround myself with people that were much more creative than I was. And that was and that was really helpful because it helped me be better. I couldn't go to the art department meeting with an idea that was like something we had already done or something that was lacking or really bad because they would never hesitate to really 
you know, argue about it and, and be, you know, um, be very aggressive at how they felt about what they what we were setting out to do, which was to change it, be our own style, our own people, what we did, our look and feel uh, was so varied. And we, we, we like that. We like the fact that we didn't look like everything we did. I can show you thousands of pieces and none of them look the same, just like my album covers. None of them look the same because we did something different every time because each group was different. Even if it was the same kind of music, they were different. It was either a different amount of group of guys in the group, or it was quietly a different sound. Maybe it's more jazzy or more rock or, or more, you know, whatever. Um, and so we tried to really specialize in formulating whatever we ended up doing for them. The look and feel of it represented them. And again, that's one of the other things about having people that are better than you makes you be better and it makes the work product better. So Pacific Ioneer, by 1974 or five, <clears throat> when we were on the map and we were really doing well in corporate America as well. So we, I went to the art department meeting, I showed them the prints and everybody really thought it was right on. Okay. And I was the only one that had heard the music, but I was able to convey it. We had this, the album before this one. So we put that on. We listened to music all day long and smoked pot all day long. So it was kind of a great environment to be in if you're a creative person. So uh, Drew Struzan obviously was the, the most amazing illustrator. I mean, every one of them was unique in their own thing, but nobody was like Drew. Drew was like working with Michelangelo. The guy was just unreal. It was unbelievable what he could do. And, and there were some things that he was really good at. And then, you know, some things that he needed to learn and that was one of the great things about having this diverse art department with their, each one having their own skills. We all learn from each other. You know, Carl Ramsey taught Drew Struzan how to use an airbrush. Drew Struzan taught Carl Ramsey how to draw the human figure better. You know, Bill, Bill Garland was an amazing, amazing cartoonist. And he taught Drew how to do cartoons and Drew taught him how to be draw better people and stuff like that. It, it was amazing to be there. And over the course of about four and a half years, watch each one of them, including myself, go, you know, beyond anything that I ever thought I could achieve. It was incredible. It was like being on a championship team and you win every season, every season and, and nobody even comes close. And so you see from this, idea now the, the prints that i had didn't look anything like these the prints that i had was a, a an evil man and he's got all the sacks of money and you know and, and, it, and it's very dark and dungeness and and uh on this particular bad person you see that his his pillow is becoming a snake that's choking him his bed is becoming a trap that's and look at the tension of the fingers of the bed on the end posts of the bed. I mean, it's just tense. It's just really, and you know, Drew drew this really not looking at anything. I mean, he, he could, he could sit there and talk to you for five minutes. And while you're talking to him, he's doing a sketch of you and he turns around and shows it to you. And it looks like you're looking in the mirror. It was that kind of crazy. And that's why I'm saying I've never, I work with a lot of amazing people in my career, but I've never worked with anybody like him. Never. And probably will never again. I'm 79. I don't know if there's going to be another Struzan that comes into my life. But, you know, the, the cool thing was that I taught him, too. 
He, he was a fine artist. He came out of Art Center as a fine artist. He wasn't an illustrator. To fine artists, illustrators are whores because they will compromise their work for money. Uh, fine artists won't do that. And Drew was a fine artist. And he was also very religious. So I really had to talk my keister off to get him to do this album cover because he was very religious. And to him, Black Sabbath was the devil. And it was even harder to get him to do Alice Cooper <laughs> because Alice was with snakes. I mean, it was all demonic. And with the 666 man's imperfection on the headboard. And, yeah. and you know, I mean, once I convinced him that he needed to do it, because when he first came to me, nobody would give him a job because he was very religious. I mean, extremely religious. And we were all, all the rest of us were on the other end of it. You know, I mean, we were party animals and really kind of crazy and stuff. But the combination wasn't really offensive to either side. I mean, it was like when it was time for us to come together, we came together in an amazing way. And then we each had our own lives that we went back to, you know, when we weren't working together. And I think that's one of the reasons that kept us together for so long. Um, but when when Drew, uh, when we decided on the idea of the good man and the bad man, uh, this is the sketch that Drew did, okay? And then I did the lettering that went on that sketch. So we kind of took turns. He did the drawing, and we talked about where the lettering was going to go, and I did this kind of, you know, uh, gothic-looking, um, you know, old English kind of logo, which I thought was the most amazing, one of the most, a Bee Gees logo that I did was amazing, Alice's logo. But this one, this one was really, and it's funny because, and we'll talk about that in a little bit about the logo and how it was changed and stuff and how uh, my feelings were about it. And again, the whole album was different than when it left us. It was going to have a white background on it. It was going to have that lettering on it. And it turned out to be, and, you know, Black Sabbath was big at the top and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath was smaller at the bottom. And when we saw it printed, it had a black background and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath was up big and Black Sabbath was small. So I guess there was a decision made somewhere after it left our hands that they they made and was completely, uh, you know, a, a sucker punch for us because we weren't expecting that at all. Yeah. And But, you know, again, that's their, you know, their ability to do that. I mean, they're the group. They're the ones that it has to, that they have to be happy with. And and so then you see over here on the, so so the, the, the man on the front is, and, 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 and you'll see this in the final art. The guy that's being choked by his pillow—that's Drew. Yeah. In the, he's in. He's in all the, both pieces. The women that you see, the ones that are turning into demons, uh, on the finish will be my wife and Ingrid Hinky, the illustrator that did the toys in the attic cover for us for uh, Aerosmith. So there we have the bad man. And all his relatives are turning into demons, his pillows, you know, choking him as a snake. The bed is becoming a trap. 666 man's imperfection, the skull in the middle. And then we go to the back cover. And this is the good man where he has, you know, all his relatives are very angelic. And with that overarching spirit behind him, godlike spirit behind him. And again, the and with the with the the leopards at the end of the bed, you know the wild beasts and everything is calm and everything is is peaceful as opposed to the front cover, no tension. Everything's really and and we we interpreted that with color as well. 
and you'll see I'm going to switch over to the front and back cover now. So you'll see here that um, the colors that we used, the, the color range was very sparse. It was panic colors. It was tension colors, red, stop sign, you know, things that the fire engines are red. Everything that's panic-like is red. On the back cover, everything is blue and calm and pastel, pastel -y. So you have that contrast again. The relatives on the front are demonic. The relatives on the back are angelic. The, you know, the bed is a trap. The bed is not a trap. You've got the overarching spirit-like behind him. He is peacefully sleeping. You've got the sleeping lions. The, the kings of the kings of wild, you know, are sleeping peacefully at his bed. Mm -hmm. And and the cool thing about these pieces is, um, and when we had our show at the Smithsonian in Memphis, the Rock and Soul Museum, we had an 18-month album cover art show there where I had 125 of my 350 pieces at this show for 18 months. And what we did was we put an anvil case in the middle of the room. And there's probably 30, in that particular room, there were probably about 35 pieces. And on the anvil case, we put all the actual album covers. So you could pick up the 12 and 3 eighths by 12 and 3 eighths album cover and walk over to the actual piece of art. And you're looking at this 12 and 3 eighths by 12 and 3 eighths album cover. And you look up and there's the front cover illustration of this Black Sabbath cover and back 30 by 40. It's huge. They're huge paintings. And uh, it would just, I, I, a couple of times I would just hang out there and be a fly on the wall to watch people's responses. And it wasn't just to this piece. Welcome My Nightmare is an oil painting that's 30 by 40. You know, we did pieces bigger because when you shot them down, they got tighter. So the, the bigger you can make it and it's tight, when you shoot it down, it becomes even tighter. So we were we were into understanding how all that worked because that's a big part of you know what you do is one thing how it ends up looking that's a whole nother thing and this this album is a perfect example of that you know it was nothing I mean it was nothing like what we expected but it wasn't the first time and it won't be the last I'm sure but so here you have these two beautiful thirty by forty illustrations the other interesting thing about these two pieces aside from the fact that they're so huge, is they're done in colored pencil. Okay, colored pencil is like, remember when you were a kid and you'd use crayons and you'd be doing something on a piece of paper with crayons and then you try and put another color over it. And the more you did that, the less it would stick to the page that you were doing it on because it had a parathane base, waxy base. And if you did it too much, it wouldn't, the surface wouldn't let it adhere to it. So you'd end up with this white area or whatever color you were doing the drawing on in color pencil or color crayon. Uh, and it wouldn't take, it wouldn't take anymore. So it'd be like a white spot and there was no way you could do it even with a little bit of gesso or something in that area to try and then go over it because you can't, because it's a different texture. So the pencil won't react the same way. So it'll be obvious. He did these two illustrations in colored pencil which was one of the things that he was really great at when he first joined us. He was an oil painter and a color pencil artist. And again, color pencil is very rarely used by anybody to do something like this, and especially so big. The only thing that's not color pencil on these two illustrations 
is the background ochre that you see over here and the background blue purple that you see over here. Those are acrylic. And again, uh, this girl here on this side, that's Ingrid Hinkie. She is a kid's book illustrator and a fashion model and a, uh, a swimsuit designer. And she did the Toys in the Attic album for us. She was one of the illustrators. The other women, the woman here is my wife, Bonnie. And the, uh, this is Ingrid again here. Drew is in the bed. And Drew is in the bed on the on the front cover too, which is really ironic because he was so he was so religious. I mean, this guy was religious. His whole I mean, when when we would have lunch, his wife and young son would come over to the art department and bring his lunch to him, and they'd sit there reading the Bible, and we're on the other end of the studio drinking beer and smoking pot. You know, it was a crazy crazy environment, and uh, and and Bill Garland. Uh, one of the other top illustrators working with, he used to dress up like a priest on the weekends and go hang out at LAX and people would come up to him and, you know, talk to him. And he got off on that. It was really great. We were a crazy bunch of people wow. and, and to come together in such a way with these great pieces was really kind of, <clears throat> it was really kind of amazing, you know, and I, as I look back at these pieces and I think about, you know, the stuff that was going on, you know, when we were doing them, it was pretty incredible. Um, and so we, we did these, uh, these two front cover illustrations. And then I'm going to show you um, this. I'm going to go to this. And we did a lot of photo scrap. Okay, we had a Polaroid. This is one of about six different Polaroids. You see Drew there in the bed. There's my wife, Bonnie. There's Ingrid. And we did a lot of uh, Polaroids and scrap that Drew would then do his drawing from because this one had to be really exact. And so we used Polaroid a lot. And then what you see over here, when we had uh, our museum show in Glendale, at Forest Lawn Museum, we were there for six months. Uh, you see Drew here on the, let me see, I gotta go this way. Here's Drew, here's Ingrid, and here's my wife, Bonnie. And their point, there's the artwork on the wall. So you can kind of get an idea of how big it is. And each one of them, the girls is pointing to the characters that they are in the illustration. So, and again, like I said, these Polaroids, we had a, I don't know, a couple dozen of, we did that a lot because it was, it was easier. It was always good to have scrap to work from. Like if you needed a picture of, you know, somebody walking a dog, it would be easier if we couldn't shoot a Polaroid of it. We, I had hundreds of books and we would spend hours and going through books and tabbing them and the scrap that we would find always looking for scrap so the polaroid came in really handy because we constantly were using polaroids for a lot of stuff we were, we were doing not just this particular album <clears throat> and then we go over here to this last frame here that i wanted to show and there's something interesting here that most people don't know in fact i don't think anybody knows but this is the lettering that I did. This is the finished art. I mean, it's beautiful and it's big. It's it's big because again, we shoot it down. It gets tighter. It looks amazing. And I again, I thought this was like, and I think even today, correct me, you guys are heavy metal guys. I think that this would be a pretty iconic uh, lettering for you know heavy metal. And oh, yeah. you got to remember, this is 1973. Heavy metal was just getting started. And we had done stuff with Captain Beyond, who was Iron Butterfly. They became Captain Beyond and Rod Evans from, you know, the movie or Deep Purple. Deep Purple. Yeah. And then the Rhino and Lee and Bobby Caldwell. 
we did three albums for them and, and that's a whole other story but but um when we did i did that lettering and if you look at the illustration and i'll send you these pick these pictures so you can blow them up if you want to show them you can you see these two lines coming down on either side of the skull mm -hmm. okay that's the two lines that connect to my lettering yeah okay when they took my lettering out and they put their lettering in, they didn't take those lines out. So if you look at the finished album cover, those two, those two lines on either side of that skull are still there, but yeah. they have that their own lettering, which is this lettering down here, which I never really liked. I mean, I understand that it's, I'm a lettering guy. Okay. And I'm very sensitive to letter forms and what they suggest and how they're presented and, and how you need to use them as a tool to communicate. And I, I understand this SS and the Nazis, it's kind of got that kind of weird feel to it, but I don't think it has any place on that album. Cover. You know, it is not what I would have done. And obviously you see what I would have done uh, or what I did do. And what they ended up putting on there was just really kind of, I, I, but again, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be able to say I did this Black Sabbath cover. It was my idea, it was my lettering, it was my art direct, creative direction, it was Drew's illustration, beautiful illustration. And, um, but it, was it the way we were hoping it would be? No, you know, but in the end, I guess it doesn't really matter. Uh, because I have I have all the original artwork, which is kind of nice. Because people go, well, man, don't you feel like you you know you should have done something or said something? No, I mean because as long as this album is out there and people are talking about it, it just makes the pieces I have more valuable and more top of mind with you know fans. And you know I've been able to sell prints and tapestries and all kinds of stuff that you know from my pieces because I have the rights to them and. and uh, so that it, it, it kind of all balances out, you know, at the end of the day, everything balances out. And, you know, I, I, I'm just glad to still be alive and doing stuff. I'm still just as busy as I've ever been. Only I make more time for myself. I'll tell you at 78, I can't believe that 78 years has gone by. I mean, it seemed just like yesterday that it, we were at Pacific Guide here and I was in my twenties. I started Pacific Guide here in my 20, 26. And it just seems like it, I don't know where it went. I know it went by BYE, but it sure doesn't seem like there were that many years of it. And I can remember saying, oh, you know, if I, I'm, I'm 40 and if I live twice my age, I'd be 80. And that's realistic, you know. And then you're at 78, unless I plan to be 156 or something, uh, you know, which I don't want to do, uh, it's going to be, you know, what I've done up to now, and I need to have my own time. So I now I have for the first time uh, over the last five years or so, I, I, there's time that I don't sell. There's my, my dance cards full, but there's a few dances that I've kept that aren't taken for anybody but me and my wife, Bonnie. Bonnie and I have been together for 60 years. Wow. And, uh, and she shared everything. In fact, without her, I would have never done anything that you're seeing or any of the other stuff. It was her determination and her putting her foot down when I was ready to want, run away from adversity and, and failure, um, who taught me how to don't run away from it, sit and figure out why, and then don't do it again. And uh, she's been very aspirational and the love of my life. 
first time I saw her, she was dating my best friend on a double date we were on, and I fell in love with her at that at that exact time. I was like 18 or something. And, and you know, you, you wonder, wow, if I'm ever going to, who am I going to marry? What are they going to be like? Will I ever get married? What's it going to be like? And it just seemed like just the other day I was going through those kind of gyrations. And now here we are 60 years together. And it's just unbelievable. You know, it really is. And, and, awesome. and very blessed. Yeah. So, I mean, is there anything um, that you guys want to ask? Yeah. Absolutely. Tell us about the, uh, I, the, uh, UK gatefold, oh, the gatefold. I know yeah, that yeah. you weren't spe specifically involved with that but right. do, you, do you have any stories around well I have you know what I have <laughs> I have all the pictures of them all in their underwear standing around you know posing for those ghosts like well you know one of the things that we did convey we weren't involved in doing the shot but we were involved in creating what the shot should be you know and we had talks with Pat and we had talks with, you know, uh, the photographer and we talked about, you know, how we should have, you know, if we could find a four post bed and we could take the pictures of them from the waist up without any clothes on uh, in these kind of, you know, translucent kind of poses, uh, spiritual like, it would be great to give them to us and we can superimpose them with that bed of the shot of the bed. So what that is, is we've, I've got three or four rolls of film of all of them in these different poses, standing around in their underwear and during the shots, you know, smoking cigarettes and joking around with each other. Um, so I have all that, but we picked the shot that we like best and we superimposed it with the, in, with the inside shot of the bed. And that was only used in, in uh, UK and Europe, I guess. It wasn't released in the United States. It was only a front and back in the, in the United States. And I don't know why. Because that really made it, I really liked that inside spread. I thought it was pretty dynamic and sort of told the rest of the story, you know? I mean, yeah. So, but yeah, that we were slightly involved in that. We weren't as involved as the concept of the whole package. But again, you need the concept, no matter what you do with it, whether it's an in store piece or it's a, an ad that you're doing or a tour poster or something, you need that initial concept, that initial uh, branding that represents. The group and and what they're all about and i think we really achieved that on this cover as we did on a lot of the covers that we did i mean not yeah. every keeper is a winner but you know i have 250 children and i love each one of them for <laughs> reasons you know? so. well this one is definitely when you talk to black sabbath fans and they're ranking the album covers this is this is my favorite black yeah. sabbath album cover and i know it is uh, for for many many fans so this is a very iconic uh, cover and i'm glad to hear that the the original print you still have the original print i guess it's it's still out there it's art. no it's actual art i have all yeah. the i have 350 pieces i have the world's largest privately owned original album cover art collection wow has yeah. Black Sabbath, did they ever reach out to you again after this album to, to no, work with them again? It's, or? <laughs> it's funny you should say that. Um, there's a guy named Colin Newman, I think his name, Colin. He reached out to me about three or four months ago. And we were talking about this album. And he was Sharon Osbourne's father's accountant, okay, when she was the secretary for her father. They had signed Black Sabbath. So he's, and he, I think he's still with her. He's still with her. And they reached out to me uh, to, to see if I had the artwork, and I did. And they're telling me about how 
Sharon has this amazing collection of art. It's real high end and she might be interested in buying these pieces. And, but first, you know, he wanted to let me know that I talked to him a few times for hours and how they were, you know, he wanted me to talk to this guy who was a creative director in England that's putting together a, a, a box set. And, um, and so I had a conversation with them. Uh, but before that, um, I never really, well, what happened was I had this conversation and there is a creative director that was putting this box set together, which just like really very nice and stuff and said, I just, I can't believe that we're actually going to get the high resolution images and all that stuff. And, and I said, well, you know, hang on a second, because I don't give those images to anybody. Because if you have the high res image, you can go ahead and make prints. You can do whatever you want. And I own those. That This is my artwork, and I'm not about to give it to you. To do, and that's the last I ever heard from any of them. So, you know, yeah, that they reached out to me, or at least their representatives reached out to me. I never talked to Sharon. They never gave me a – they didn't even ask how much I wanted for the two pieces. You know, but they're expensive. They're 150000 a piece. Yeah. I know it sounds like a lot, but when you think about yeah. the value, it's the provenance. It's two museums, the Smithsonian, you know, Forest Lawn, both very prestigious museums, and the fact that the most collected illustrator in the world did them, and they're the originals. There's only one each. So yeah. when you start thinking about it, you know, it's like, and I've got a, I've sold some pieces. I've got a couple guys that are album cover art collectors, and when you really sort of come down to it it's about generational wealth when you're talking about a piece like this these pieces this is generational wealth you buy these for three hundred thousand dollars and 10 15 20 years from now they're worth three million dollars uh, when i was uh when i was uh trying to write some verbiage for the website that i have that sells the pieces and, and prints and stuff I, I rented, I, I rented, I, I went out and bought some um, books, some magazines on collectors, magazines for fine art, antiques and stuff like that. I wanted to pick up some of the verbiage that they were using. Like, instead of saying this is for sale, it's for acquisition. It's, it's okay for, it's ready for acquisition. So there's a way of saying things that give it a higher end, more like an art critic would talk about a piece rather than me saying, oh yeah, Drew and I hung out together and, you know, we, we came up with this idea and he did it. And, you know, so I wanted to add that kind of a, a stature to it, that kind of a sophistication. So I'm looking through Antique World, which is one of the big magazines, right? Let me regress for just a second. When I was in the eighth grade in junior high school, my junior high school art class went to San Francisco. I grew up in San Jose, went to San Francisco to a gallery that had two Norman Rockwell illustrations for Saturday Evening Post. Nothing special. One was 15,000. The other one was 30,000. Okay. They were, they weren't like Christmas issues of Saturday Evening Post, nothing, you know, just regular, you know, that weekly Saturday Evening Post. And so cut to like 40 years later, and I'm looking through these magazines and I turn the page and there's the piece that was fifteen or was thirty thousand dollars in nineteen fifty-eight. It had just sold at auction for fifteen million four hundred thousand. Wow. Okay, now 
Drew Struzan is more collectible than Norman Rockwell, J.C. Leindecker, you know, Mooka, you name it. He's more collected. What do you think this piece that you pay 150000 for today is going to be worth 30 years from now? You know, you talk about getting your, yeah. child, your child in education. The kid could buy the school. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. really, seriously. And, and, and on top of everything else, it's Black Sabbath. They're iconic. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very blessed. I'm very, very blessed to be able to have all these pieces who have done all this work. And, you know, my corporate work, like I said, is probably four or five times more than these pieces. And the interesting thing about the corporate stuff, those pieces, a lot of those pieces, I've got 77, 77 original Drew Struzan pieces in my collection. 77. These, it isn't like these are the only ones. And a lot of them are really big. And so, you know, those kinds of things um, end up being very, very valuable. And the corp he did a lot of corporate pieces, which is also interesting because people know about the movie posters. When it comes to Drew Struzan, Google them. You'll see if you have it. I mean, it's amazing, his work, you know, and they know he did movie posters. And some know that he did album covers. Nobody knows that he did work for corporate where I have all the corporate pieces because he only did corporate work for Nestle and Kraft, you know, all these other companies that we did, you know, Shipwreck Kelly's and, and it goes on and on the list of corporate pieces that we did together. Flying Tiger Air Freight, when Chenault's Flying Tigers during the Korean War came back, they started an air freight company and we did all their advertising, branding and stuff. And I've, I've got a 23 piece, uh, Drew, we did a slideshow for their salespeople. And Drew did 23 illustrations in the style of Jack Davis from Mad Magazine. And he never did anything like that again. I got 23 pieces all in th that were part of this slideshow. So I've got pieces that are pretty iconic and then they're even more iconic because he never did it again. He only did it one time and I have it. The other thing is he never made a mistake on all the pieces that he, we've ever done. He never made a mistake on what he was doing. And the only time he did something twice was when we did a Tony Orlando and Dawn album. There was no Photoshop or anything, and we needed to make Tony bigger in the illustration. We did the finished illustration and everything. Tony wanted to be bigger because it was Tony Orlando and Dawn. And Dawn. <laughs> so we had to do a second illustration. I have both of them. You know, and it's just, I, I mean, I'm so blessed, so blessed, man, to be able to be, you know, doing what I've done, loving what I do, you know, keep on making history instead of becoming it. You know, I've got, there's plenty of time to make history when you're, when you're dead in the grave, but I want to, as long as I'm vertical, I want to keep on creating, keep on creating history. And I'm still doing it, but in a much different way now, you know, in a much more less tenuous way. Well, you, you, you certainly given a gift to, to music lovers, the, the art on these album covers and the logos. Yeah marry so well with the music i mean i'm wearing i don't know if you can see it oh yeah you're welcome yeah. my nightmare awesome awesome <laughs> t-shirts yeah. posters i mean it it becomes one and the same yeah and with sabbath Blaze sabbath in particular i mean that that album cover just matches so well with the music so it's you know what what you've contributed is just as important as the music. I mean, we, we we process these things. And if you're a visual person like like myself, I mean, it's really important to have these two components working simultaneously. 
So, yeah. and yeah, I appreciate it's, it's that. It's amazing. You. Um, you know, it, it really is. Um, I, I, I'm very humbled by that. And, and I, again, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just been, again, like I said, lucky enough to be in the right spot at the right time and, you know, have the right skill to do what I needed and, and surrounding myself with people. I mean, I've had people say, what's the smartest thing you ever did? Smartest thing I ever did. I didn't realize I was doing, I put people around me that were better than I was. And I said that earlier. I mean, it's true. If you surround yourself with, uh, you know, with turkeys, you're never going to soar with the Eagles. Right. So, you know, you just have to make sure that, and each one of those people, every person that worked at Pacific Ioneer over the years, and it's still today. I mean, I, I'm more, there's just a couple of us. And it's a guy that's been working with me since 85. And he does all my computer finishing. I'm still old school. I do sketches. And then, you know, that, and I, I'm sort of like uh, John Henry and the, stale, the, state, the steel driving machine, where John Henry's competing with a machine that can put spikes in the railroad thing. Uh, faster than men and he ends up dying but he beats the machine and i'm kind of like that i'm constantly you know figuring out ways to still stay relevant and sketches is definitely one of them and then creative direction art direction you know ideas that's it because no matter how good an illustrator you are if the idea isn't good it's just another piece of work each one of the pieces that we've done i think is kind of falls into that category uniqueness even if it's a group that you've never heard of and there are yeah. a few of those there are quite a few of those not all 350 or all not 250 covers were done for superstars i was just lucky enough to get the, the doors and jefferson airplane and grand funk and alice and all these other black sabbath all these pieces these and jesus christ superstar the rolling stone song i mean it goes on and on yeah. uh, and it's very gratifying for me to be able to say, hey, you know, I, I was a big part of that, but I was a piece of it. It wasn't always all me, never. I've never done anything on my own without influencing, being influenced by others around me. You know, so it's, it's really, the creative process is, a, is a, just that. It's a process of people coming together and sharing ideas and being able to come away with taking something that's good and move it to great. And that's that's a, that's sometimes that's a hard thing to do, but that's one of the things that was our madra at Pacific Eye here, you know, taking good and making it great. A lot of people are just satisfied with good. And today it seems like good is kind of taking the place of great. And every once in a while you get a great thing, but you know, I, even the corporate work that we did is great. It really is. And, and unique and just as unique as the album covers, again, trying to get completely involved with the product, the consumer understanding what it is that we're selling and who we're selling it to, you know, the messaging, all that. I've become quite a marketer as well by working with Nestle and Kraft and Coca-Cola and companies like that. Yeah. I work with marketing people, some of the brightest guy, people that are running major companies today. And that's the other thing I'm staying alive in corporate America because these people I met 30 years ago are now running major corporations and they're bringing me in to do the work. So I just did a bunch of stuff a year or so ago for Ocean Spray for about a year and a half with them and created some really great stuff. And, you know, so there's and that guy I met three companies before at InBev. I used to do a lot of work, three and a half years for InBev, the largest beer company, Bex, Bass, Stella Artois, Coquini, all these, you know, beer brands, Brahma, 
Um, and I was going every other week to Connecticut. I would be a week in California, a week in Connecticut. I did that for three and a half years and uh, was part of the internal team there with Inbev and Bex. We, we took Bex from your grandfather's beer to uh, a, a, a big selling beer. And then it sort of slipped back into Never Never Land, which it happens sometimes, and especially in corporate America. They, you get them going and then they think that they can do it without you, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then they go off and it goes right into the dumper. It's, it's great. But, or, you you know, get an ad, or you get an ad campaign that runs for a certain amount of time and then it kind of loses steam and then it goes back, it reverts back to what it was. Yeah. Happened. Well, and, and usually why that happens is because the team that created the first thing is gone. They get rid of them. They don't need them. They can do it without them. I mean, I've had that happen so many times, but I've also been very lucky with, with companies like Nestle. I mean, I, I worked in five of their six divisions. Their, their uh, Northern American uh, headquarters was in Glendale. And we, we rented a space right next, like one block away from them. And my partner and I at the time would, would make a bet on who could walk through the building and come out the other side with the most work. Because we were working with all these different divisions and we were competing against Shia Day and, you know, you know, all these crazy groups, you know, uh, big agencies. Um, and, you know, it, we were constantly taking work away from them. And uh, it was kind of nice. We were the smallest vendor on their 16 agency vendor list. And we were taking a lot of work, a lot of work from Leo Burnett, Shia Day, McCann Erickson, all these big agencies. And then there was David Hale. That was the name of the company after Pacific Ioneer. Pacific Ioneer lasted about 14 and a half years. Okay. And then, my, my partner at the time went his way. I went my way. It wasn't a good ending, even though it was a great partnership for 14, about, well, about 12 of those 14 and a half years, it was a great relationship. But then like everything else, it happens to bands all the time. Happened to Black Sabbath. Sure. You, know, you start unwinding, man. You start finding little things that become irritable, you know, or, or things that should have been done and weren't, you know, the heart isn't in it anymore. When, when Tony and I started Pacific Ioneer, we were brothers. We were, it was him and I and Bonnie, and we did it. I mean, we were, I wrote a story called The Little, the little Company That Did. I, I put it out once in a while, but it is all about Pacific Ioneer and how we just had this dream and how we could do things different than the guys we were working for because they were kind of schmucks. And we each put in 2,500 bucks and we started Pacific Ioneer in a one bedroom house up in the Hollywood Hills. And then it just started coming to us. The work started pouring in. Thank God for Alice Cooper and Chef Gordon and people like that. Bones Al, mm -hmm. you know, all these different, you know, uh, Bob Ezrin, all these people, Lou Reed. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. And, and a lot of it connected back to Chef Gordon and Alice Cooper, who were still part of the Alive family. I, the last thing I did for them was the uh, Welcome My Nightmare 2. And then I did the box set right before that old school. So they use me when they want me, and I, I've done 13 albums for them, uh, and I hope to do another one. Uh, if I don't, 13 is a great number when you're working with Alice. <laughs> Lucky it's number, better, Alice. Better than Halloween, man. It's better than Halloween. And the funny thing is, Friday the 13th are always great for me. I've had those are stellar days for me. Nothing but good <laughs> happens on those days, and I guess that's why you know working with Alice is so so good because nice. we've been together a long time, a long time. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, th those album covers and the packaging, was that was that your idea as well? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah all yeah, the, the cardboard box for Muscle of Love, 
you know, all the different, you know, welcome my nightmare and from the inside mm-hmm. was a really cool one with all the little yeah. doors and stuff that you go very interactive. One of the things that I always tried to do and a, and a perfect example of that, two perfect examples are, well, three perfect examples are um, the, well, from the inside album with all this interactive stuff, the doors full circle album, which you punch out and make a zoetrope that sits on top of the record and turns around and you see animation. And then the Jefferson airplane Long John Silver, that the square folds up into a rectangular cigar box that you clean your pot in, you know? I mean, so yeah, construction was always something that I really loved to do. And, you know, uh, was there when they were putting the zipper in the Rolling Stones sticky finger album, you know, I mean, I, I was, I was really, really, I felt that my job as the person that's creating, I needed to create the link between the, the musician, their music, and the fan. And I needed to, they created an audio link. I needed to create a visual link that would connect that fan emotionally to that particular album or that particular, that music. And that was, you know, and I carried that over into corporate America and it's worked very well. It's helped me to make sure that I'm selling. I, I, I know what the design needs to be to sell to a, a specific audience. And I learned that in Ma- on Madison Avenue and then really perfected it in the record company and in corporate America. So it's been, it's been an amazing trip and it's not over yet. You know, I feel like I'm just getting started. It's weird. Only I'm in more control now. Because I, awesome. I say, you know, I never thought I would say no to something when I, when you, especially when you have your own company and you need every job, you know, and I never thought sometimes you'd take chicken shit and try and make chicken salad out of it, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't always work like that. And, and I've been very lucky to be able to have done that more than not. And now I'm choosing the clients that I want to work with. And I say no to more work than I say yes to, which is really nice because it balances out nice to have a life. You know, I have a life and there are days that go by that I don't do anything, but maybe I have a 67 Corvette that I totally redid. And I I saw a picture of that. Yeah, 44 pickup, you know, so I'm a car guy. and So I go out and work on those and, and put around Palm Desert. Yeah, going, going back to you mentioned when you first met the band you went to the mansion and everything you said yeah. that you got to speak with geezer and and, and, uh, and, and, and Ozzy. yeah yeah what was your impression of them especially ozzy who has this reputation and i'm sure back then he he had it then too that he was sort of this crazy madman what was no, your impression i didn't get that from him at all and you know you could say the same thing about alice Alice, people think he's Alice all the time. In fact, it almost killed him trying to be Alice all the time. You know, and Ozzy, Ozzy to me was very, he was very methodical and he was very exact about what he said. He didn't say a lot, but what he said really kind of resonated with what we were talking about. It wasn't like he was out of it. I mean, and yeah, they were doing a lot of drugs and booze, but hell, who wasn't? We're all doing it back in the day. I mean, I'd rather, I remember going to record companies and with album covers that I was turning in or with managers in the album covers. And, and we go to the PR guy and he'd shut the door and bring out the tray with the Coke on it. And we go over to the A&R guy and he'd do the same thing. And it was just, everybody was doing it. It was all part of the scene. And, you know, uh, so it, it, I, I didn't, I didn't really expect m- much from any of them, but again, I mean, 
Ozzy listened and he wasn't off the wall. I mean, he was very, again, very, he's the one that said, you know, when I said, well, you know, what is Sabbath Bloody Sabbath? What does it mean? I've heard the music now. What does it mean? And that's when he said, it's like to them, I guess they came to all these realizations about life and life ending. And, you know, it's the beginning of the end. I mean, and I guess you could say that from the day you're born, it's the beginning and the day you die is the end. And is it a whole lifetime or is it one album or what is it? And I think we were talking in the context of an album, but I think it was more in real life for them. Yeah. You know, that's what I came away with, you know, and it was driving back from the meeting, going back to the office. And I was thinking about what he had said, what they had both said, what Patrick said, you know, and it just all kind of immediately, I mean, immediately when it all came together in my head, I saw those two images that my aunt had given me and it was like perfect. It was perfect. And again, yeah. they didn't look like the in-depth illustrations that Drew did, but Drew's illustrations were much more amazing than the actual pieces. I don't <laughs> remember. Do you remember the name of those original? Uh, no, I don't. I know, I know or... that it, the theme of them was a good man and an evil man at the split second of death. I would say it was in the mid to late 1800s. It was prints from it was European prints. They were glossy, and they were they were linear. They were line drawings, but they had color in them. Not like a rack of, or not like a. Uh, they were more like a rack of than a than a courier knives. Courier knives always had kind of pastelly colors. It wasn't very punchy. A lot of landscapes and stuff in line, you know. But these were these were more different. These were they were like real 1800s drawings. You know, that's the best way I could explain them. And then somewhere along the line, I lost them. You know, but I'm sure, you know, and I never tried to do that. But I bet you if I Googled English prints, good man and evil man, both at the split second of their mm -hmm. death, I bet you they would come up because they were Probably. they weren't just like somebody did it. And, you know, they were they were print. They were they were they were manufactured. They were more than just a set that I had. So but it's interesting. I never really thought about that, but I probably should Google Good man and evil man, both at the split second of their death. English print. And I bet you yeah. We'll have to do that and see if we can yeah. find it. Uh, the yeah. original print that you have of Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, I know that you said, you mentioned at one point you had like uh, an art display where you had a bunch of your uh, yeah, covers I, and uh, stuff on display. So does that, does the Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath original, does it ever get does anybody ever ask you to put that like in a, maybe there's a show or something? Oh, yeah. it's, uh, this, this piece, these two pieces, along with about 125 other pieces that are all framed and matted. The provenance to those is this, you know, and, and all 125, they've had two museum shows, one in Glendale at the Forest Lawn Museum, which is a very prestigious museum on a top of a graveyard in Glendale, which is really weird. And, but a very high-end museum, highly respected. And then the other one was the Smithsonian, their first satellite museum in Memphis, Tennessee, at the Rock and Soul Museum. I had an 18-month show there. And then there have been three gallery shows. Gallery shows are, anybody could have a gallery show. They're not very prestigious, but it's important. But gallery, all you have to do is rent a space and promote it, put some pieces in it, and now you've got a gallery show. Museum shows are completely different. You have to be invited 
to a museum show. You can't just, you know, show up and they're going to give you a show. They're usually two or three years scheduled out, you know, and it just so happened that I had, I had some friends in Memphis, uh, influential friends that were friends of the curator of the Smithsonian there. And I was, I, they had brought me and uh, about a hundred pieces to Memphis to a company called Art and Speed that had all these classic, amazing cars, you know, uh, classic cars, about a hundred of them. And they had this big facility in Memphis and we had a show there. It was, it was uh, called Art and Speed. And there, and we um, had uh, about a hundred pieces displayed in this big showroom with all these muscle cars and stuff. It was amazing. And when I was hanging the show there um, at this facility and they custom made these panels that I could put my pieces on and we were playing rock videos and music and had all this catering stuff. I mean, it was amazing. There was about, uh, I don't know, six or 700 people that came to the opening. And uh, as I was hanging the show, the guy that was writing the PR for the show at this art, at this uh, car place uh, knew the guy that was the curator of the Smithsonian in Memphis and called him up and said, Hey man, you should, his name was John. He said, you should come out here to art speed and see what's going on. There's all these album covers. And so he got there and I was in the back unpacking. I had these shipping crates that were built by a real hot cooks shipping that ships museum stuff. And so I was unpacking the pieces and this AR, this PR guy comes back and he goes, I want to come outside. I want you to meet the, you know, this guy in the showroom. And I walk out there with him and this guy standing in front of the welcome to my nightmare piece. And his jaw is like down to below his chest and he's looking at it. And he just, he's just amazed by it because I think what he thought was that these were going to be, somebody took a bunch of album covers and framed them. Yeah. And here's this original artwork. And that's when he said, Hey, would you, after your show here, would you consider having a show at the Smithsonian? And I said, let me think about it. Okay. <laughs> and that was, that was how that happened. And yeah, the problem I see that part of the pieces that I'm talking about, the, why the prices are so high because they're iconic they're done by the most collected illustrator in the world. And they've had the provenance of two museum shows, which raises the level of, mm. you know, before these pieces could go into that museum show, the museum had to appraise them. So I know my pricing is right on these pieces and it'll only be worth more and more as years go by. So, you know, yeah, uh, museum shows are great. I'm working on two more two more, hopefully one in Boston and one in Carlsbad. So we'll see where those go. But uh, I'm always looking for that kind of an opportunity. And, and again, there's not so many pieces around anymore. There really aren't. Most people, I lost 23 pieces in a flood in my parents' basement. You know the billion-dollar bill out of billion-dollar babies? I yeah. lost the artwork, the Joe Patagno illustrations for both sides of that bill were lost in a flood in my parents' basement. I lost 23 or 24 pieces there. Few of them were Struzans. Wow. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I stopped feeling bad about those and the ones that I gave away before my wife and my partner stopped me because I became yeah. friends with all these guys and they go, man, I want that. You know, can I have that art? Sure, here you go. You know, and it was, it was just that kind of, you know, that was how you rolled back then. 
And then my partner came to me and Drew Struzan told Bonnie to come to me and say, look, he's giving away stuff that's going to be your future. <laughs> and he was right. He was right because he became so famous. And so did Bill Garland. Every movie poster that Drew didn't do, Bill Garland did. Those guys did really, really well. And Carl Ramsey, too. And Joe Garnett, God bless him, he's passed away. He was a great illustrator. And so was Carl. Carl has passed away, too. And, you know, it just makes you, you know, makes you realize that time is short. You know, and, and I want to make sure that I take advantage of every waking minute and sleeping minute that I have left. I'm, you know, 78, like I said, it's there's not, you know, I'm down the other side of the hill kind of, but not creatively. Creatively, I, I stay, I, I got my chops. I still have them. I'm doing great. I'm doing a lot of packaging now for different clients. And got a, I got a medical marijuana. I got two medical marijuana clients. I'm partners in a third one. And I have a CBD client. And I have a magic mushroom client. So those industries are the fastest growing right now in a crappy economy. But, you know, they're growing faster than anything. And big money's coming into those industries. And I'm making a name for myself there. It's great. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Granddaddy Perp, the purple marijuana strain. But I did all of the for the last 12 years. I'm partners with the initial grower of that strain. And that's amazing for pain and stuff. I have bad hips from car wrecks that I had because I'm a car guy. And uh, that just makes the pain go away. So I make my own edibles and I, you know, eat them in a, a mellow all day long and there's no pain. Cool. Yeah, I certainly appreciate. I want to talk to you a little bit about. I'm here for us. So thank you. Oh, no, you're kidding. I love it, man. I love talking about this stuff. And I love, I love talking to younger people too, because they're, they're discovering it. And that's the other thing. These things as long as people have ears and, and, and eyes, my stuff will live forever because they discover the music. Every generation discovers the music and then they discover the art. The art goes with the music. So if I drop dead tomorrow, I feel really great because I left my mark. I've left an incredible mark and it'll live on long after I'm gone, which is amazing. And isn't that what we all want? We all want to be able to say we were here. I want to be more than a headstone in a graveyard that people stop coming to put flowers on. It's not what I'm about. I want to be able to leave a mark so that when people look at it, go, wow, man, this guy did some stuff. <laughs> you were going to ask me a question. I'm sorry. I didn't yeah, go ahead, Darren. Okay. Um, so the original logo or the Black Sabbath that you had for Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Yeah. Um, a few months ago, I bought a box set called The Hand of Doom, and it's a picture disc of all the albums, well, at least the first eight albums. Uh -huh. When it showed up at my doorstep, it was in a cardboard box, and that logo was on the front of it with the skull from Sabbath. Really? Yeah, I don't know if you were aware of that. But no, I wasn't. I wasn't. No. Repurposing that logo on this particular package, and I was surprised to see it because I've always liked it. As soon as I saw the original, which which you just showed us in one of your slides, right? I was immediately drawn to that because it's it's such an organic uh, letter. Yeah letter form that i thought really went well with the right of the art itself it wasn't as stiff as the well, i guess you would call it the teutonic right face that ended up on the final album cover yeah. um you're seeing those now right on the screen are you seeing those yes. yeah they're, they're out oh, there okay now. good because I, I i i haven't shut what i'm looking at because it's bigger if i shut it it gets real small uh -huh. so 
I, I, I just want to make sure you guys see me, see it. Yeah. I'm surprised if you could take a picture of it, and send it to me that I would love it because I, I, w I always thought that it was really perfect for them. And it was, like I said, I was really disappointed to see that it wasn't, but it happens before. I mean, people just take it and do whatever they want, you know I mean? And, and so, you know, and it's so funny because I had a, a very good attorney. I have, the number one attorney in the state of California for intellectual property and licensing rights. Um, and he's like $1,100 an hour. And the guy is really smart. He saved my ass a couple of times. And he said, you know, really with them changing it the way they did, you could go back and sue them because you created it. They changed it and they're not supposed to do that without asking your permission. Yeah, I was going to ask you about you know, that. And so, you know, the last thing I want to do is get in a pissing match with the Black Sabbath or even mm -hmm. a pissing match with the Rolling Stones. I mean, sure. God bless them, man. Let them use it. I got paid. You know, we did that album. Guess how much we did that album for? Lettering, illustrations, all in. 500 oh bucks. <laughs> no, no, a little bit more than that. Uh, 5,000. No, three thirty five hundred. Wow. Yeah, and now those two pieces are worth three hundred thousand. Now, here's another thing that's kind of curious to me. So I have, I have the first pressing, the UK pressing of uh -huh. the WWA. Okay, on the very, and this is something that I just became aware of, that there are two versions of the back cover, not not the art, but the credits. On the very first pressing. Pacific Eye and Ear isn't credited on the back. Oh, really? Yeah. There, so there's only two lines. You have all the uh, the production credits, and then uh -huh. you have some some of the uh, special thanks, and there's two lines of that. Mm -hmm. Later on, it was added to the third line. Album concept and design, Pacific Eye and Ear, illustrations, Drew Struzak, photography, Shepard Sherbel. Right. He's the one that did the photography yeah. inside yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that this was added after the album was actually in production. Uh, you wow, I, you know what? I never noticed that because the copy that I have has our name on it. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe you know. I mean, there was no. We didn't reach out to them and go, "Hey, asshole, what did you do? How come you changed <laughs> it?" Stuff like that. We didn't do that, so there was no bad blood or you know any any kind of disagreement or anything we were yeah. just shocked when we saw it and again the one you're holding up has a white background around it the front was supposed to have a white background around it as well but they changed that too yeah yeah and then i've seen you know what i've seen i've seen the back cover with my lettering on it as a front cover i just saw that somewhere i saw that recently too it was in another country i think i don't know yeah yeah exactly and it was the back cover illustration and here's another funny thing to me the front cover is killer yeah. okay the back cover is okay but the front cover is so dark you know just amazing and dramatic and just you got to look at it the more you look at it the more you see yeah and you know i i i have uh there there are a few sites that people leave comments and stuff. And I have an e-commerce site where I sell prints of all this stuff. And I get probably 10 prints of the back cover to every one print that I get of the front cover order. Yeah, I mean, people seem to gravitate more toward that back cover and the peaceful calmness of it all and the colors and stuff. So, 
Then they do the front cover. I would have guessed it to be exactly the opposite. Sure. And I track it just as a as a odd thing to do because I couldn't believe it. I mean, if you ask anybody, they're going to go the front cover, man. That's just awesome. That's that's mm-hmm. Black Sabbath. You know, the back cover is not Black Sabbath. The front cover is Black Sabbath. But when you understand the concept of it, they're both Black Sabbath. It's yeah. the, you know, it's the concept of those two entities, the life they've led, and how it ends for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and to me that was, I mean, that's something that when my aunt gave me those two pieces, I mean, I never, I mean, I always remembered them. I mean, they were so dramatic. I also had had one of those portraits of Jesus with the eyes that would follow you wherever you were in the room. <laughs> you know, I, we used to wake up in the middle of the night with a flashlight. Me and my brother would <laughs> flashlight on there, and he, Jesus would be looking at us, man. It was like, oh, you know, this is crazy. But uh, yeah, so you know, I, I, uh, I'd, I, if you could, I'd like to see that. I mean, take, yeah, I'll take a picture of it. I'll send. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I, I you know, I, I really appreciate you guys letting me ramble on here about this stuff. You know, it's, yeah, it's, we appreciate uh, you. Yeah, thank yeah. You. I mean, is there any other questions that you have? I'm good, um, but Darren, do you have any other questions for Ernie? Well, when you were talking briefly about how you you had met with Sharon and she wanted to buy the the art yeah. from you, um, well, I didn't meet with Sharon. I met with this guy Colin, who was oh, okay. worked with her. And then when they were, you know, both working for her father, who was managing Ozzy, to today, he still is friends with her and works with her. And he was the one that told me that she would be interested in buying the art because she has this amazing art collection and. Her and Ozzy are going to open up uh, a museum. I heard, yes. I heard about that, yeah. Yeah, they're opening up a museum, and she wanted to put these. And that was the spiel they gave me. But, you know, it turned out to be something totally different. They just wanted me to give them the, Im- the high-resolution images. And I, would, I don't do that for anybody. See, I wonder, and John and I were talking about this uh, prior to, to the show here. Black Sabbath has been putting out special edition box sets where they'll take the studio album, yeah, um, they'll remaster it. They'll put some live stuff in there, a book, maybe a poster. And they've done how many have they done? Four or five now? Four, I think so far, yeah. yeah. But they haven't done Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath is one of the more iconic albums. Um, yeah, I think so. Too. We were we were wondering maybe if you knew anything about, and I think you kind of alluded to that a little bit by talking about how they wanted to get the high resolution, right. Prints. Um, so it, it, it seems like maybe that's what they were trying to do. Oh, they were. Yeah, it was. It I mean, was through another box set. Oh, yeah. get that well, no, they, she, they said that they were working on a box set. Oh, OK. It, she, there was a creative director in England. See, I was at first thinking, well, you know, this would be great. I'd love to do the box set for them. I'd love to do another thing for Black Sabbath. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, I did that great old school for Alice. And I thought that came out really it took us three months to do that. It's got yearbook in it and all. I don't know if you've ever seen the inside contents of that old school box set but it's killer big school desk on yeah. and stuff I mean it's very cool and and uh but I, and it, my first it was kind of like the way they he was painting the picture of like wow this is gonna be great we're gonna do this great great box set and I and he didn't say there was another person already doing it in our second conversation he didn't mention anything about Sharon being interested in it, but he wanted me to meet this creative director that was putting together the box set. And, you know, I've been screwed so many times. As soon as I hear certain words, the little antennas <laughs> go up, yeah. you know, and you, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's 78, man. You know, I've been screwed by some of the best there is, 
you know, and so I can sniff out right away. As soon as he said, this creative director, we're on this call and he's going, oh man, I can't believe I'm, I'm meeting you. I love your work. I'm a big fan. And I can't believe we're actually going to get the high resolution images for this. You know, and I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. And I appreciate you liking my work and all that stuff, but uh, it's not going to happen. I don't give those to anybody. And I say, as an artist, I'm sure that you understand. I'm not trying to be confrontational. I'm not trying to hold out for money. I'm just saying that once those images are out of my hands, yeah. That's it. Done, yeah. anybody could do it, you know? And so, um, and even the prints I make, I have embedded. So if you try and reproduce it, it big thing comes up. It's just exclusive property of Bernie Shuffler. Good. So, you know, but you don't see it until you try and reproduce it. So I have to do that because I sell some prints that I sell are like $300. Drew Struzan sells his movie poster prints for two and $3,000. You know, and that's, that's, I mean, and Lucas and Spielberg own all the movie poster stuff that Drew did for them. Yeah. And he can sell them, but he has to give them 50% of everything he sells. And I think he's partners, Drew is partners with a guy in Texas that has a uh, gallery called Galactic Gallery. Mm -hmm. And it's all Drew Struzan stuff. There's a good video in there of him now. There's a video uh, out called Man Behind the Poster. And I'm in that. I'm in it for like five minutes. And about Drew's career and all these stars that love his work and Harrison Ford and all these directors and stuff. And yeah. They got Tony Seininger on there, who is the guy that was in all the movie posters that took away all my illustrators. And he talks about how he wanted to get a hold of Drew. So he found out he's working at Pacific Ioneer and he called Pacific Ioneer and asked for him. They, we put him on the phone with him. The next thing I know, Drew's leaving to go to work at Tony Seininger uh, because he could make what he would make in just doing a series of, of sketches. I would, he would make in a week from me. And, 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 and when we all parted and we all did at different intervals, uh, intervals, uh, it was never bad. It was like, hey, man, I'm not coming to you to ask you to try and match this. I know we can't, but I've got this opportunity and it's really hard to say no. And, you know, I don't want to freelance behind your back. You know, we were we were a family. I mean, Pacific Ioneer was a family for about four and a half years. And then the family started going in different directions. And, you know, I, I could have done the same thing, but I, I didn't want to do movie posters. You know, I wanted to do corporate work and stuff that I was doing in the, in the music business. And I, I Pacific Ioneer, in 14 and a half years, I did 189 album covers. The rest of the 250 came after Pacific Ioneer stopped. And I, I continued doing, because I had, you know, Alice and, you know, uh, made friends with musicians the next and Kenny Rankin, you know, a lot of people kept Black Oak, Arkansas. We came back for, I did eight, nine albums for them, five albums for for Kenny Rankin, three or four albums for George Carlin. You know, I mean, I've done a lot of, you know, crazy stuff and I enjoy it. You know, I enjoy doing that, but I also enjoy, you know, doing corporate work as well. So it keeps you, you know, open-minded and you have to think, you know, now things that would take me, it's really funny because I just did this the other day. I have a new client and they have this project and, there's only so many problems. And if you've got all the solutions, it's just a matter of finding the, the problem. You know, I'm not, I'm not in the position to look for the solution. I have the solution. I just need the problem. And, uh, and what used to take me 
sometimes days to come up with and stuff. Now I do it in a matter of an hour or two, just because it's, there's so many and so many ways to do it. And I've become so good at what I do, you know, and not coming from an egotistical standpoint, but just from reality. I found that I've become very good at what I do and I can do it very quickly. And that's, you know, that's another piece of the fact that I don't need to do anything on computer. I've got a guy that's one of the best computer guys in the world and he just makes my stuff. He's been making me look good for a long time because I'll just do a sketch and give him the sketch and he builds it in the computer. And it looks like, Oh my God, this is beautiful. And for clients, it's great because if they hire somebody to build something for them in a computer, a con some concepts for a, a something they need, you know, they'll sit there and spend hours building three or four things on the computer and I can do 10 times that in less time in sketching and show the client the sketch. And it sketches good enough to convey the concept. And then I give it to the guy on the computer and he finishes it. And, you know, we're like an old married couple, man. We dot each other's eyes and cross our T's. And it's great. It's great having that. It's it's like being back at Pacific Island here. But, and he used to work at Pacific Island here. So we, we've, been, we've been together for a long time. It's great. Nice. All right. Well, uh, Darren, do you have any more questions for Ernie or should no, we go ahead and wrap it up? All right. Well, Ernie, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I really appreciate really this. Appreciate this was it. really fascinating. Uh, for everybody listening out there on the podcast, we're I'm going to be posting some excerpts from this discussion on my YouTube channel, Layer of the Alchemist. So make sure you go out there check the YouTube video because Ernie had some images uh, that he was showing in the background while, while he was talking. Uh, Ernie, is there any uh, links or any websites or anything that you would like to let? Yeah, the there's, uh, well, actually, if I can, there's three. There's one called the fine art of rock.com. Okay. And there's Pacific I and ear.com and the and is spelled out. So it's Pacific I and ear com and then there's uh original album cover art.com or you could just google me if you google my name you'll find it all it's there's pages and pages it's amazing internet's incredible uh, <laughs> for an old fart like me man i just sit there with my i'm you know i'll be online looking for something and all of a sudden something of mine will pop up and i'm like wow how'd that get there who did that you know i mean it's there's somebody that posted 90, almost 97 album covers of the 250 that I did under Pacific Ironier's name. So if you Google Pacific Ironier album covers, there's like 97 covers that come up. So, yeah, you know, I appreciate that. And again, if there's anything else you want to know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm always around. And, and again, thank you guys for letting me do this. I mean, I, I'm very excited about this because Black Sabbath was a, was a great cover and I really enjoyed doing it, and even though it didn't end up the way I wanted to. Enough of it did. And the what didn't is now out there because of you. And I appreciate that. I totally do. You let me get that story out there. And, you know, it's awesome. I, I really appreciate it. Well, we, did a, uh, we, we did a podcast on the album where we talk about the music and we talk about some briefly some of the history of what we of what we know. And we did an episode, I guess it's probably about an hour and a half. And we spent probably about at least a half hour talking about how important the art was, the album cover. And um, so it's really great to have you on to talk about it and give us more insight. We, we mentioned uh, Drew Struzan by name when we talked about it. 
but it's great to hear you talk about them and how what a wonderful. Well, I'll send you these was. images. I, I'll send you. I got them in a folder, and I'll just send you the folder if you want to post some of them up. The images that I've been showing you. So I'll yeah, send you. Great. Thank you. If there's anything else you need, let me know. And if you want to talk about it again, there's plenty to talk about. <laughs> well, thank you. Appreciate it. So thank you again, Ernie, and everybody out there. Uh, I know I'm sure you all enjoyed this conversation as, as much as we did. Stop on over on our Facebook page. We, we've been talking about this and we'll be talking about it some more uh, over there also. So thank you again to Ernie and to everybody out there. And uh, we'll see everybody at the right. next podcast. Sounds like a winner to me. And let me know that information and I'll post it on my Facebook pages and social media too. Yes. And I'll be linking in the description of the podcast and on our YouTube video, I'll have the links uh, for Perfect. the websites that Ernie mentioned where you can get more information Perfect. on thank him and his you, thank work. Thank you, guys. Have a great evening, thank and uh, we'll see you when we see you. Okay. Thanks.